welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your host. This week, we will be continuing our youth review series with Megan Gavin, a lawyer and partner at Cascadia Law Group, who practices environmental and federal Indian law. She works on advancing innovative and collaborative solutions to the dual crises of climate change and declining marine biodiversity. She has also been active in defending tribal treaty rights and protecting natural resources of 20 federally recognized tribes in the Puget Sound and Olympic Coast areas with treaty reserved fishing rights. Megan's accomplishments and potential have been recognized by the IUCN World Commission on Environmental Law, Super Lawyers, and the Environmental Law Institute's Emerging Leaders Initiative in both 2021 and 2022. She is also a volunteer with the Building Tribal Leadership and Carbon Removal Initiative and serves as an advisor to Yale University's Carbon Containment Lab. She holds a Juris Doctor from the University of Washington School of Law with a concentration in environmental law, an advanced certificate in conservation biology from Fordham University Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, and a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Geoscience from Boston College. Today, we will be discussing government-to-government consultation with tribes in Washington state and the power dynamics surrounding government relations with tribal nations. We will also discuss changing environmental conditions and the impact that could have on future consultations. We will hear a little bit about how the Biden-Harris administration's new policies on consultation impact Megan's work. Lastly, Megan will offer advice to policy workers who are looking to branch out from their current area of expertise. Megan, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Georgia. I'm so excited to be here. So to start us off, can you explain to our listeners what government-to-government consultation is? Yeah, happy to. I'm going to take your question in in a couple parts, describing the federal and state processes for government-to-government consultation, and then explaining what a G-to-G is not. To begin, I believe it's important for our listeners to remember that tribal nations are sovereign governments. As such, a unique relationship exists between tribal nations and the federal government, which is grounded in the U.S. Constitution. The federal government's consultation obligation arises out of this unique relationship. The federal government is a trustee to the treaty tribes, meaning it owes federally recognized tribes a trust obligation, giving its treaty time guarantees to protect tribal nations and to respect their sovereignty. The Supreme Court has described this trust obligation as a fiduciary duty and moral obligation of the highest order. Besides treaties and federal case law, this obligation to consult also stems from executive orders and statutes such as NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, and the National Historic Preservation Act. A GGG at the federal level is a formal dialogue between official representatives of a tribal nation and of a federal agency during which they discuss a proposed action of concern to or potentially impacting the tribal nation. The federal agency should do three things. One, provide sufficient advance notice to the tribal nation to allow for a productive conversation and exchange of information. Two, meaningfully consider the tribe's perspective. And three, afterwards, explain how the agency's decision incorporates the tribe's input. 
The process aims to result in mutual understanding and informed and respectful decision-making. Some state governments, like my home state of Washington, have G2G protocols too, though they arise from different obligations. Washington committed to a G2G relationship with federally recognized tribes with reserved rights in the state. They did so under a 1989 State Tribal Centennial Accord, a 2004 Accord, and the 2012 State Tribal Relations Act. The act requires state agencies to make reasonable efforts to consult with federally recognized tribes with traditional lands and territories in Washington and to collaborate in the development of policies, agreements, and program implementation directly affecting those tribes. So now, Georgia, on to what a G2G is not. It is not the same as free prior and informed consent, the standard set by the United Nations. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples requires country governments to consult and cooperate in good faith with Indigenous peoples to obtain their free, prior, and informed consent before adopting and implementing legislative or administrative measures that may affect them. Consent or permission is the objective of that consultation. G2G, on the other hand, aims to be a respectful process of meaningful engagement but tribal consent is not a required result. A G2G is also distinct from a best practice referred to as informal consultation, which a project proponent should undertake early and often, in my opinion. Because a federal or state agency's obligation to formally consult with a tribal nation is not triggered until there's a proposed agency action or undertaking, such as when an agency receives a permit application, Waiting to engage with a tribal nation until that point can have adverse consequences for the tribe and for the project proponent. By the time a proposed undertaking has reached the point of agency consideration, a project proponent has typically made an irretrievable commitment of resources and finalized its siting decisions. If, for example, it's no longer feasible for the project proponent to consider alternative locations, then the tribal nation did not have a meaningful opportunity to provide feedback on that siting issue, and the consultation process will be forced to focus on whether any adverse impacts to the tribe can be mitigated, rather than if they could have been avoided entirely by siting the project in a different location. If the impacts cannot be adequately mitigated, then the project proponent probably will not receive all necessary permits for the project to advance. I therefore advise my clients to informally consult with each tribal nation that historically used the lands or waters where the client is considering siting a project before making any final decisions, both to ensure that the tribal nation can benefit from or at least not be adversely impacted by the project, and to increase the likelihood that the project will timely receive all necessary permits and regulatory approvals. Informal consultation also has the added benefit of enabling a tribe and a project proponent to develop their own relationship, separate and apart from the agency's relationship with the tribe, which can be really meaningful for the project's success going forward and for addressing its adverse impacts to tribal nations. So you were just talking about some clients that you have as developers, but you also represent tribes in specific cases. And one tribe you're representing in U.S. versus Washington concerning tribal fishing rights. So your work in this case is just the most recent development in a long history between Washington State and the tribes that live in the area. Can you tell us more about the history of this case and your role in the case currently, obviously, to the extent that you can? 
Certainly. So that case is U.S. v. Washington, which is the case that reaffirmed the rights of treaty tribes in Washington to co-manage fisheries resources. Other states, such as Oregon, are involved in similar federal case law. As you said, Georgia, this case has a long history. It involves actions dating back to 1855 with the federal government's treaty time guarantees. So in 1855, Territorial Governor Stevens executed eight treaties to obtain the land of the tribes in what is now Washington state. The tribe ceded millions of acres of land and in exchange, reserved small reservation lands and what was most important to them at the time, the right to continue to fish, hunt and gather in all of their traditional places. The treaties contain similar language. The following is a modified quote. The tribes reserve the right of taking fish at all usual and accustomed grounds and stations in common with all citizens of the territory. Together with the privilege of hunting, gathering roots and berries and pasturing their horses on all open and unclaimed lands. Washington state respected those treaties for a little while, but then as settlement of the area increased and overfishing and habitat destruction became more rampant, the state began to infringe on the treaty tribes fishing rights. The state imposed discriminatory laws against native fishers and began arresting them for off-reservation fishing. In the 1960s, native fishers and their supporters held fish-ins, like sit-ins, in protest to defend and stand up for their tribal treaty rights. The fish-ins became increasingly violent from the opposition. Uh, then in 1970, the federal government, acting as a trustee for seven of the Western Washington Treaty Tribes, sued the state of Washington, arguing it was denying the tribes their rights guaranteed in the treaties. The state countered that its fishing regulations were a proper exercise of its police power. As an aside, the lawsuit was brought in federal district court in Tacoma, Washington, where I clerked approximately 45 years later. The case was assigned to Judge Bull, who was known for having held a group of Vietnam War protesters and activists called the Seattle Seven in contempt of court, so it wasn't expected that he would issue the decision that he ultimately did. His landmark decision was in favor of the Western Washington Treaty Tribes. He upheld tribal reserved rights in three major ways. By one, interpreting the treaty language of in common with, as stating that the tribes were entitled to half of the harvestable number of fish returning or passing through the tribe's usual and accustomed fishing grounds and stations, their UNA. Two, establishing the tribes as co-managers of the fisheries resource with the state. And three, establishing conservation standards that restricted the ability of the state to regulate treaty tribe fishing. I want to emphasize for our listeners that the Stevens treaties do not gift the tribes 50% of the harvestable catch. Rather, the tribes preserved that right. And Judge Bolt's decision affirmed their reservation of rights. So his ruling really was not radical, legally speaking. The treaties are the supreme law of the land and they say what they say. But given the cultural circumstances of the time, it was almost unimaginable to those involved that Judge Bolt would reach the conclusion that he did. At the time, tribal fishers were catching less than 5% of the fish and being punished for it. His decision reinforced tribal sovereignty and reconfirmed the legal status of the treaties. Unfortunately, Washington largely refused to implement Judge Bolt's ruling until 1979, when it was upheld by the Supreme Court. 
So to get us back to the start of your question, Georgia, you mentioned that this case is ongoing and that's how I'm still involved in it today. Judge Bolt outlined the geography of the treaty tribe's UNA based on the evidence before him as part of his decision, but he knew that the case wasn't ultimately about establishing that UNA. He also knew that the tribes didn't have the resources at that time to establish their UNA that they might later. So he entered an order of continuing jurisdiction so that the tribes would have an opportunity to prove they customarily fished in a larger geographic area than they had the resources to substantiate in the 1970s if they later came upon that evidence. Recently, there was a bench trial for a USB Washington subproceeding about whether a tribe customarily fished in waters at and before treaty times besides those in its declared UNA. That case began in 2017, and it is now before the Ninth Circuit. The district court decided against the tribe and cautioned that, quote, absent a new and truly significant anthropological discovery, the court will be disinclined to reassess UNA issues going forward. So the district court is hinting that it may be time to sunset US v. Washington, and the Ninth Circuit has made similar hints. It's really interesting how long that case has been going on, and thank you for the detailed history you provided. I know that helped me understand it better. So it seems like, although this case may end soon, our constantly changing environmental conditions could increase the occurrence of cases like this one. I wanted to hear your thoughts on whether this case sets a certain precedent for other cases involving tribal treaty rights or how you expect the situation to evolve with our rapidly changing climate. I think about this question a lot, although I don't have a perfect answer yet. I think that in our world, facing the worsening effects of climate change, lawsuits involving a loss of a reserved tribal treaty right may have a higher likelihood of success than other types of lawsuits, such as tort lawsuits, although the tribal treaty cases will still face the problem of needing to establish causation. The Colbert's case, which is another U.S. v. Washington subproceeding, exemplifies a line of possible future cases that I've been thinking about. As we've touched on, the tribes that signed the Stevens Treaties reserved the right to harvest fish and shellfish. The Supreme Court clarified this fishing right as a right to 50% of the sustainably harvestable catch or enough to earn a modest living, whichever is less. Critically, this right doesn't mean much to the treaty tribes if there are no fish left. So in 2001, under the Colbert's case, 21 tribes, along with the federal government, again sued Washington state, alleging that state-owned culverts were reducing the number of salmon that could return to the tribe's UNA, and thus were adversely impacting the tribe's ability to earn a moderate living. The district court agreed with the tribes and issued an injunction directing Washington state to correct its culverts impeding the passage of fish to spawning grounds or other critical habitat. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the lower court, concluding that Washington was violating its obligation to the tribes by reducing the fish available for harvesting in their UNAs. The Supreme Court also affirmed in a split 4-4 per curiam opinion. So similar to the Colbert's case, I think lawsuits about how actions by the state that worsen climate change and thereby reduce the number of salmon or other cultural resources available to the treaty tribes are worth exploring. 
For example, climate change is causing and will continue to cause streams in the Pacific Northwest to have lower flows and warmer temperatures during the summer. These changes are predicted to devastate summer salmon runs. I think the Washington Treaty Tribes could consider suing the state for its role in reducing in-stream flows and creating too high of water temperatures because those circumstances will adversely impact the Treaty Tribes' opportunity to make a living from their fisheries. The same could be said for the way ocean acidification affects the ability of salmon to return to their natal streams or for shellfish to grow where they historically did. The problem with these potential causes of action, of course, as I, I'm sure you're aware, is whether these harms are caused by the state and are redressable. The state owned and maintained its culverts. No action by the state is single-handedly causing climate change. Nonetheless, these potential actions are worth thinking more about, in my opinion, because the tribes are the least to blame for climate change, but among those suffering its effects the most. Yeah, that is a very interesting way to think about it. There's this, you know, legal implication, but how much can you assert that blame? It kind of reminds me of something we've been talking about here at ELI, where we're examining the effectiveness of certain laws, namely Assembly Bill 52 and Senate Bill 18, two California laws that require state agencies and local governments to consult with California Native American tribes on any proposed project subject to the California Environmental Quality Act in the geographic area with which tribes are traditionally and culturally affiliated. So seems like these two bills are very similar to the kind of work that you're doing. However, the government in California has ultimate veto power over the outcome. Washington State has also established their tribal consultation grant, which provides funding for tribes to consult on how auction revenue is spent. What is the legal landscape and power dynamics surrounding government-to-government consultation in Washington, and how do you foresee this landscape changing as governments work towards more inclusive relations with tribal relations in in Washington and California? I think we're at an inflection point. So overall, in my opinion, the power dynamic in Washington and across the country is improving, but has a ways to go. I'm gonna delve deeper into your question by elaborating in a couple areas, beginning with your comment about CEQA and then moving to Washington's Tribal Consultation Grant. For our listeners who may be unaware, CEQA is often referred to as the mini NEPA, Washington state has a similar law, the State Environmental Policy Act, or SEPA. So all three of those, CEQA, NEPA, and SEPA, require an agency to consider a proposed action's effects on tribal cultural resources. One reason why I mentioned consultation in Washington is improving, in my opinion, is because of a final environmental impact statement recently issued by Washington's Department of Ecology regarding a hydro pump storage project. The FEIS analyzes constructing and operating the energy storage project as proposed and a no action alternative. Some tribes that historically used the proposed project area and the surrounding lands and waters have expressed disappointment with a lack of meaningful consultation. However, ultimately, the state's FEIS reaches a conclusion favorable to the tribes that historically used the project area. The FEIS concludes that the project would cause significant and unavoidable adverse environmental impacts to culturally important plants, traditional cultural properties, archaeological sites, 
and other tribal resources for which no sufficient mitigation, and this is key, supported by the affected tribes has been identified. Ecology is applying the tribe's perspective on whether impacts to their cultural resources could be adequately impacted or are unavoidable if the project were to move forward is really noteworthy. It continues a recent trend of ecology practicing that respect to tribal nations. The NEPA analysis isn't out yet, so I can't speak to that. So on to Washington's tribal consultation grant. This arose out of some efforts beginning in 2020 when the Washington legislature set limits on greenhouse gas emissions to combat climate change. The state's required to reduce emission levels over time. So by 2030, greenhouse gas emissions must be 45% below 1990 levels. And by 2050, 95% below 1990 levels. In 2021, the state legislature passed the Climate Commitment Act, the CCA, which establishes a comprehensive market-based program to reduce carbon pollution and achieve those ambitious limits on greenhouse gas emissions. Under the CCA, covered entities, which include industrial facilities, certain fuel suppliers, et cetera, each with an annual greenhouse gas emissions above 25,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent and opt-in entities must either reduce their emissions to compliance levels, meaning levels consistent with the declining cap on emissions, or they must obtain compliance instruments to cover or excuse their excess emissions. Two types of compliance instruments are accepted, one auctioned allowances and two offset credits, each representing one metric ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. Credits generated from tribal offset projects will be particularly valuable, and my hope is that tribal communities will benefit from them. During the first compliance period, a covered entity may use offset credits to account for 8% of its required emissions. Generally speaking, 5% can come from any type of offset project with an accepted protocol, and another 3% can come from offset credits generated by projects on federally recognized tribal land. During the second period, the general limit drops to 4% with an additional 2% available from projects on tribal lands. This structure means that the price of credits from projects on tribal land could be worth more than credits from other offset projects because they're the, quote, extra 3% available during the first compliance period and the extra 2% available during the second compliance period. So how does this relate to the Tribal Consultation Grant? Well, the state also established the Tribal Consultation Grant which regards the other compliance pathway, auction revenue. Washington has committed to using auction proceeds to invest in clean energy solutions and climate resiliency programs and to address environmental injustices, such as by improving air quality and overburdened communities. The tribes in the state will engage in government to government consultations about this spending. The first auction was held at the end of February. So if any consultations have already happened, I'm unaware of them. We started this conversation today. I clarified that a GGG is not commensurate with free prior and informed consent. And when we got on this particular question, I noted that although we're seeing improvement in terms of respecting tribal sovereignty, there's still a long way to go. 
the tribal consultation grant was almost even more interesting because it very nearly included tribal consent. There was language enacting that if a future project brought by the state or private developers encroaching on tribal lands in a way that the tribal nation viewed as intrusive or overly cumbersome, then the state would recognize the tribal nation's ability to stop the project. The governor vetoed that language. However, in the same session, the state passed a law that permitting for salmon restoration projects may not be expedited without tribal consent. And the state's attorney general's office has a policy of consent. So perhaps we'll see consultation with consent become the standard in Washington in the next decade. And I'm optimistic about that. Yeah. So we've spent a lot of time in this episode talking about consultation work in Washington in particular, a little bit in California on that state level. But I'd also like to talk to you about any innovative partnerships between the U.S. federal government and tribal nations on climate mitigation that you see are working well or could be improved. How can those successful partnerships be applied to other states and accelerate the clean energy transition? I don't have firsthand experience with any innovative federal tribal partnerships focused specifically on climate mitigation or resilience. My work tends to focus on salmon harvest and recovery and protecting tribal treaty rights. But I am aware of some joint research endeavors, projects, and funding programs that I can mention. For example, NOAA and the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium recently launched a pilot project to increase Alaska Native communities' resilience to climate change, and NOAA launched a similar pilot project with Louisiana Sea Grant and a tribal nation in southeast Louisiana. In 2011, the Bureau of Indian Affairs established the Branch of Tribal Climate Resilience, which funds tribal efforts to adapt to the effects of climate change through an annual awards program. The bipartisan infrastructure law injected additional money to address the impacts of climate change on tribal communities, including for drought resilience and community-led relocation. Already, the BIA has selected a handful of tribal nations to receive funding to relocate, but including a Washington tribe, but more tribes have applied for assistance than have received it. The Inflation Reduction Act also includes funding to address climate-related impacts on tribal communities, such as what you mentioned, invest investments to provide electricity to unelectrified homes through zero emission energy systems. While we're on the topic of innovative partnerships, I'd like to mention two NGOs, the Building Tribal Leadership and Carbon Removal Initiative and the National Indian Carbon Coalition. Both initiatives are at the forefront, in my opinion, of the intersection of advancing tribal sovereignty and mitigating climate change and building resilience. These groups are working to ensure that tribal nations lead the climate transition, just as they have led as a natural resource steward since time immemorial. Thank you for shouting out those NGOs. It's definitely really interesting to hear about that kind of work being done from community members. And I will look into them more. I'm sure our listeners will as well. I also wanted to talk to you about something that's been particularly newsworthy recently. So... In December of 2022, President Biden hosted the second Tribal Nations Summit of his administration to increase communications with tribal nations and provide an opportunity for them to talk directly with senior officials. Among other actions, Biden has established uniform standards for tribal consultation and first-of-its-kind indigenous knowledge guidance for federal agencies. 
How do you expect the administration's new policies to affect your work going forward? And have you already seen the impacts of these policies at the state or local level? Yes, I have already seen impacts of these actions on my work. I respect that one of President Biden's first actions was to issue a memorandum on tribal consultation and strengthening nation-to-nation relationships, which reinforced an executive order issued by President Clinton in 2000. In general, that executive order prohibits a federal agency from promulgating a rule impacting a tribal nation unless the agency provides funds necessary to pay the tribal nation's direct compliance costs or consults with tribal officials. As you mentioned, President Biden also issued a memorandum setting uniform baseline standards for tribal consultation this past November. In my experience, irrespective of the baseline standards, because federal agencies are human institutions with various practices and memories, each agency is different in how it interacts with tribal nations and the speed with which it's improving those relations. I'm currently working with the Western Washington Treaty Tribes and one federal agency's regional office to make sure that the burden on the tribes during a permitting review process is reduced through earlier recognition of their sovereign rights in UNA. The change in administrations certainly helped advance these critical conversations. And I'm optimistic that we'll collaboratively reach a shared understanding and resolution by the end of the year. That is great to hear. And I'm so glad that you've been able to be on the podcast today and provide these expert insights into these really complicated, important issues of tribal sovereignty and governance. But now I want to shift a little bit to who you are. So this is part of this episode as part of our youth review series, and you are very young to be such an expert in this field. So I wanted to know a little bit about how you got here. Your academic background is mostly focused on conservation biology and environmental geoscience. Can you talk about your shift towards work with defending tribal treaty rights and any advice you might have for listeners who are considering a shift away from, you know, maybe what they studied in school? Georgia, I do not think I deserve that level of flattery, but thank you so much. Fortunately for me, defending tribal treaty rights and working with tribal nations was a natural outgrowth of my scientific background and has deepened my knowledge of and ability to protect the environment. Upon entering private practice, I quickly realized that practicing as an environmental attorney in Washington and Oregon is coincident with working with tribal nations. This is because tribal nations have been stewards of natural resources since time immemorial and because they're co-managers of natural resources with the states of Washington and Oregon. So working on behalf of and working with tribal nations means that I get to be at the forefront of responsible environmental stewardship and leadership. It's truly been one of the greatest joys of my professional life. Also, my legal practice over the last year has included efforts to advance the deep geological sequestration of carbon dioxide and marine carbon dioxide removal. Those matters involve tribal outreach and potential tribal partnerships too. My ability to understand the underlying science and my relationships with tribal employees bolsters my ability to give well-reasoned legal advice and comprehensive strategic advice on those projects. So for any listener considering a potential career shift, if it's true to your values and excites you, go for it, especially if it will do some good for the planet. You might even discover, like I did, 
that your move is simply another avenue for achieving and advancing what you set out to do all along. That's a great way to think about those kind of shifts. And, you know, you just mentioned your work in the environment and climate change. Of course, that's been a theme throughout this episode. And something we do like to ask of all of our guests here as part of the Youth Review series is, how do you stay optimistic in the face of climate change? I understand optimism to be a hopeful and confident understanding that with the right approach and right action, a positive outcome will result. I attended the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Madrid in 2019 and the 2022 conference in Egypt, COP27. I noticed two significant differences between these COPs in only three years. The leaders and participants at the 2022 conference had an amplified focus on implementing quickly on the ground technological or nature-based solutions. And they were more willing to embrace a a bottom-up perspective including by elevating the voices of indigenous communities. This orientation, coupled with the innovation spurred by Bill and Ira funding, gives me optimism that humanity will come together so that we do not exceed two degrees Celsius and global temperature rise above pre-industrial levels. I'm hopeful and working hard to achieve this outcome as I know so many of our listeners are. How are you feeling, Georgia? I think you did a good job in that answer, capturing how I feel about it too. I think you just have to take it day by day. And I definitely have optimism talking to all of the guests we have on the podcast, yourself included. So many people are out there doing such great work in this space. And I really appreciate you telling me about your work today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.